been wanting to say this for seven weeks. Welcome! <laughs> praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right, we're going to have church today. Just uh, be like you normally would. Just don't touch anything. <laughs> Sing it together. Who breaks the power? This is amazing grace. Oh, who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? our chaos into order who brings our chaos back into order who makes the orphan a son and daughter the king of glory the king above all kings who rose the nations with truth and justice shines like the sun This is unfailing love That you would take my place That you would bear my cross You would lay down your life That I would be set free oh, Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me reminds us that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world for our sin. Amen. Let's give him praise. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the don't sing. I want to hear them. Take my place, that you would bear my 
Greetings. You may be seated. It is so good to look out and see someone other than just David and Don and a skeleton crew. It's good to have you back here for the church to convene. The Bible would remind us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but encouraging one another as much the more you see the day approaching. Now, we didn't make that decision on our own not to assemble, of course, but we all know what that means in our hearts to be away from the church family. Uh, we're just incomplete apart. And just thank the Lord that he's brought us back together as a church family. Just continue to pray that we would be able to stay healthy. And that we would have no one in our church that comes down with the, with the virus. That would be a blessing from the Lord. I want to also say happy Mother's Day to you moms. Uh, Proverbs 3130 uh, Proverbs 31 is uh, a lesson from Lemuel the king. Uh, it's a lesson given from his mother, but at the end, there's this incredible treatise to a virtuous woman. And the Bible says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So we pause today to thank the Lord God for our moms. Uh, I'm thankful for a godly mom who fears the Lord, who loves the Lord, and I know you would agree the same. I also want to tell you that... Uh, Preaching on the internet, it works. It, it's kind of like uh, Dr. Moeller said, it's like, preaching, it's like kissing your wife through a screen door. Uh, it works, but it's not the same, all right? So I'm so thankful for uh, being able to be back here with our church family. Uh, happy Mother's Day. We're going to worship the Lord. Uh, we're going to look at a wonderful text of scripture out of the book of Ruth, and we're going to talk about trusting the providence of God. And I hope that God will speak to our hearts through his word. And so uh, to God be the glory. Uh, if you are a visitor today, uh, you should find in front of you a uh, connection card. If you would fill that out. And <clears throat> when you leave, drop it in the offering plate. I'm not going to pass plates, but there will be a place you can give outside of the church walls. Just a reminder of that, God is so good. Six weeks prior to the virus, our church gave uh, X amount of dollars, which was good. Six weeks into the virus, and today, the church gave $35,000 more. Isn't that amazing? God is so good. And uh, you are to be commended for faithfulness to the Lord. Our God is good. And I think Don told me only 2% of churches fared that well in the entire United States of America. So that is amazing. God is good. So God bless you. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you uh, for your love for us. And our hearts are, uh, Lord, just uh, pumping with thanksgiving to you. Uh, knowing, Lord God, that uh, during these days you did not leave your throne. You are in absolute control of all things. And Lord, we know that and we trust you. And Father, thank you for allowing us to come back together. Lord, if nothing else, this is a reminder uh, of what it's like to lose assembling together. It's a reminder uh, of those across the world who are in the underground church and those who are persecuted for coming together. Uh, Lord, uh, we still have the freedom to come together. We don't know how long that's going to last. 
And Lord, when it begins to cost us uh, for coming together, will we be obedient to you? And Lord, um, thank you for the blessings of life. Thank you for our mothers. And Father, may you speak to us through your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In honor of Mother's Day, uh, Cammie has assembled, by the way, she, she assembles all of our praise teams. I'm so thankful for her. But she's assembled uh, an all-moms praise team today. So, as a matter of fact, if you're in doubt that that's true, Hillary, could, or, or Mallory, could you just turn like a quarter turn? No. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so we're all, all moms uh, praise team today. And we're just going to praise the Lord. This is a great song just to, to remind us of where we've come from and where we're going. I got saved.
speech about a spiritual truth, but physically it's like our chains are gone too, amen? We're back together. Praise the Lord. Chains are gone. The Lord has promised good to me. His words my hopes and joys. He will my shield and portion me. As long You are for 
What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. Who is mine and not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. To this I shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead oh the night has been won and i shall overcome yet not i but through christ in me
I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word. What wonderful words to say. Take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Ruth chapter 1. Dr. R. Kent Hughes was the pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois for 27 years. Most of you have probably heard of Wheaton College in that area in Illinois. And he also pastored totally in all around 41 years. And he's since retired. He has written some incredible books, Disciplines of a Godly Man, Disciplines of a Family. Uh, he wrote a book called Freedom from the Ministry Success Syndrome. Boy, what a wonderful book was, that was for me and seminary guys who are in the ministry. Incredible writer. But uh, some 23 years ago, back this past April, 23 years ago, his wife Barbara Hughes had a surgical procedure that went awry. And this is the providential story of it. As a matter of fact, Dr. Hughes was preaching on a Sunday morning in the book of Luke. And he called this particular story providential arrangement. And I usually don't spend this much time telling a story. You know me well enough to know I'd like to get into the text. But this one you need to hear because it helps you see the incredible truth that we're going to find in the book of Ruth today. <clears throat> on a Tuesday morning, uh, Dr. Hughes checked his wife Barbara into a hospital there in Chicago again for a surgical procedure. And then he sat in the lobby. And you've been there before. He, he sat down and he thumbed through some magazines. And then he read the Chicago Tribune. And then he was cheerfully greeted by a young lady named Susie who had become a friend of his wife's niece. So Barbara's niece's friend, her name was Susie, and they had worked together in a hospital lab several years before this encounter. Uh, they exchanged their pleasantries back and forth, and Susie said, well, since Miss Barbara's having surgery, I'd like to drop by tomorrow morning before she goes home and to see her. And Kent said, of course you can. He did not know at that time that Susie had gotten up that morning feeling very angry at the Lord and abandoned by God because of a constant pain associated with an infertility problem. He also did not know that she, normal, she did not normally come by that particular place in the hospital, but she only came because she needed to use the ATM. So at 10 o'clock, the surgeon met with Kent and his oldest daughter and said to them, everything is fine. She'd be in recovery about an hour and a half. And then he could come and see her. Kent decided to run home and do one quick chore and come back to the hospital. And when he returned, he found a worried daughter who informed him that they had taken his wife back into surgery. And that was supposed to only take 15 minutes. And some five hours later, the surgeons came out and said that they had nicked an artery in the first surgery. And she had lost over a liter of blood. In fact, uh, she almost died during the surgical procedure. Thus, it set them in for a very, very long night. And as the nurses repeatedly worked with her and changed the dressings, it was apparent that the bleeding was not going to stop. So consequently, around 1.30 a.m., Dr. Hughes calls back to the church secretary, one of them, uh, a pastor's wife in his church, and says, we need to pray. And so he didn't realize this, but the entire church staff came to the hospital and a lot of the friends, and they began to pray for Barbara. But she continued to decline. Her hemoglobin level was at 14 prior to surgery and at 4.9 by this time. She was without almost two-thirds of her blood. 
Her heart was racing at about 140 beats per minute. So in an attempt, uh, that was in the attempt to keep blood pumping through her body and circulating, which she didn't have much of that. A hematologist was called in and also a kidney specialist. As Barbara was surrounded by attendants, she was moved to ICU at that moment. Uh, Susie, the same little girl that came by before, came in with some magazines for Barbara at that moment in the waiting room. And she realized she was walking into a family trauma situation and crisis. And she felt, well, I haven't been around this family for a long time. Maybe I should go ahead and leave. But as she was leaving, she overheard Pastor Larry Fullerton tell Barbara's brother, you need to go in and encourage her. She thinks she's going to die. Something about, ooh, something about her blood not clotting. She just overhears this. And Susie suddenly remembered doing a blood test on Barbara's niece and showing the results to a hematologist who then warned the niece that if you ever suffer any kind of trauma, such as a car accident, you could bleed to death due to a rare blood disorder that she had. So Susie, with that thought in mind, ran down to the lab, switched on the computer, called up Barbara's niece's records, compared them with Barbara's work, and found the exact same pathology that her niece had. Susie contacted the hematologist, got over to the doctor, uh, got the cure or, or put it into her body. The hematologist gave the remedy. Uh, cryoprecipitate was the, the, the situation or what was given to her. And as soon as the cure began to be administered, the hemorrhaging stopped. She began, it began to slow down. Later that afternoon, Susie came in and visited ICU. And when Barbara saw her, uh, she was kind of halfway sedated, but she mumbled to the nurse, do you know who this is? This little girl saved my life. Do you know what happened? And the nurse responded, didn't somebody accidentally stumble across something? And Barbara, before she fell off back to sleep, she said, accidentally? And fell back to sleep. Not only had God done something marvelous, Kent said for his wife, but he had also done something marvelous for Susie, reminding her that God is in control of all the complexities of life. If God could heal Barbara, he could also take care of infertility problems. She could trust him to do the right thing. But this story, Dr. Hughes said, is not about Barbara Hughes or Susie Lux. It's a story about God. It's a story about God. What happened to my wife and to Susie Lux is an empirical, verifiable miracle of divine providence. Think about it. And here's how he sums it up. Years ago, two bored young lab technicians ran tests on each other, and one learned that the other had a rare clotting disorder. The one with the disorder is my wife's niece, who now lives on the East Coast. On the day of Barbara's surgery, the other technician, Susie, decided to go to a part of the hospital that she does not normally go to. Susie wanted to see Barbara on the next day, which brought her in to hear what was going on. Susie arrived at just the right time and for conversation of the blood clot that Barbara, uh, Barbara's blood clot problem. Susie remembered those tests from years before, thus coming up with a missing key for my wife's recovery. Susie saved my wife's life, and she may have saved some of my family's life in the future because the test revealed that Barbara's brother and our daughter, Heather, had the same genetic disorder. But was it Susie who saved Barbara? No, God did it. And if he had not chosen to do so, he would have been just as loving and just as good. How awesome God is. He is to be praised above all. And that's what this lesson is going to be to you today in the book of Ruth. 
We can trust God and his providential, his glorious providence. We can trust the Lord. Now, I believe at times that God works for our perseverance through dark and frowning providences. <clears throat> you believe that? That God sometimes works for your perseverance through the dark and frowning providences. The psalmist said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Isn't that awesome? I'm so thankful for the discipline of God upon my life, even when it's dark and frowning providence. Why? Because he's trying to get my attention so that I put my focus on the Lord and keeping his word. And God will do what it takes. The psalmist reminds us clearly, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But after the affliction, I now keep your word. But I also believe that God works for our perseverance at times through bright and glorious smiling providences. We must all remember the goal. What is God's goal in your life and my life as a believer? The scripture will tell us in Romans 8 that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now you can take this to the bank, people. That's God's number one goal in your life. It's not your happiness. It's your holiness. It's for you to be conformed to the image of Christ. So if that's the goal, what does God do to conform you to his, the image of his son? Well, sometimes it's dark and frowning providences. And sometimes it's bright and glorious. You can see the crack of the smile of God upon your life. And you see stories like Miss Barbara Hughes. I want to remind you once more of a definition of providence given to us in the Belgic Confession, <clears throat> Article 13. Listen to it. We believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. Uh, you are listening to a pastor who believes that from his radiator to his tailpipe, right? I believe that God is providentially in control of all things. Ephesians 1.13 says clearly that our God does all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice the emphasis. All things according to the counsel of his will. Now, when I look at a story like Barbara and Kent Hughes, I say, Lord, could you have not pulled this off in a much easier fashion? I mean, if you're teaching us these things, why do we have to go through so much? I reflect back on Merritt's birth when he was born uh, two months premature. We spent five and a half weeks in neonatal and, and how God worked miraculously and providentially over and over and again. I'm like, Lord, could you not just have brought Merritt into this world without all the hoopla and the difficulty? But I'm telling you, folks, God is the God of the two-minute warning. He really is. God has a flair for high drama as he works out the redemptive purpose in your life to conform you to the image of his son. He doesn't work it out just to get the job done either. He desires from you a deeper trust and he desires a higher praise. God's providence does not work in a vacuum. Ruth is a story that teaches us there are no accidents with God. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a reason. As one preacher put it, preacher theologian might I add, apparent accidents are the Almighty's appointments. Again, 
Ephesians 1.11 reminds us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. But Ruth shows us this truth of the providence of God lived out in the lives of ordinary people. That's me and you, right? We need to see this at work. God works his sovereign plan. Here's a word for you. Concurrently, he works his sovereign plan concurrently with human decisions and actions. That's the way our God works. The story today is about Ruth and Naomi. But in reality, this is your story if you belong to Christ. Because the Bible says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Qualifier, right? Love God. Called according to his purpose. If you love God and you're called according to his purpose, then God has a faithful track record to do exactly what that verse says. He works his sovereign plan concurrently with your actions and your decisions so that his will is accomplished in this world. A glorious truth. So in the overall plot of the book of Ruth, 122 is transitional. Here it is. Ready? 122. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink when the young men have drawn. And this ought to be your story right here, Ruth 2.10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found grace in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a, to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have com comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Let's look at two snapshots of the providence of God working out in ordinary people's lives. Number one, our God guides us with divine direction. Our God guides us with divine direction. Now this is the first time Ruth is referred to as a Moabite. At this point, you need to think about the animosity that existed between an Israelite and a Moabite. Remember, it started way back with the king of Moab not allowing the Israelites to use the land. And it, it, it just 
crescendos from there. So there's this race issue going on. It's a steady reminder by the author of the race issue that Ruth was not an Israelite. And another introductory note is inserted. Notice that this is, this is Bethlehem where they are returning. Uh, the Bible says there, and they came to Bethlehem. You, you do know, folks, that Bethlehem at this time would not even be a blip on the radar. Period. Just think about how God is guiding and directing. You understand that King David now will be born in Bethlehem. And then Micah chapter 5 verse 2 reminds us that his goings forth will be from old. And where will the baby be born of a virgin? In Bethlehem. Right? So here God is providentially putting a little place on the map that's so small. God begins to direct all of our attention to the fact that something glorious is going to happen in a place where nothing ever happened before. God would have King David born and the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, will be born in Bethlehem. Look at the timing here, which is providential as well. This is no small addition. Look, at the beginning of barley harvest. That's when they are returning. This is critical and this is providential. Why? Because they're returning husbandless and penniless. The fact that they could starve is real. They had no husbands. They had no money. But God Almighty brought them back to Bethlehem at the time the grain was being cut to make the bread. Isn't God awesome? Uh, bread, food would be plentiful when Naomi and Ruth return. In chapter 2 verse 1, we're introduced to a new character. His name is Boaz. There are some variant readings. What does that mean? If you've got an NAS or a New King James or an ESV, which I'm preaching from, or an NIV, there's going to be variations of how this is worded. But in the Hebrew, what he is saying is, here is a relative of Naomi's former husband, Elimelech. Is this important? Why the commentary? We haven't even met Boaz yet. Per se, but there's going to, and Ruth hasn't met him, but there's a commentary given in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1 about Boaz. What did Naomi say to Ruth and Orpah? I have no sons in my womb. And if I did, would you wait around long enough to marry one of my sons? Well, folks, here's the Lord God letting us look into the providential direction of God for his people. Why? Because there is a relative. God is working. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So we are introduced to Boaz. And notice the text. He is a worthy man. This expression, worthy man, has two nuances to it. In the simplest form, it means here's a man of substance, of wealth, uh, a man of high standing. In the South, when I grew up in Bowman, Georgia, we would say this is no run-of-the-mill Bowmanite. I'm from Bowman, Georgia, a city of about 900 people, including cats and dogs. This was no run-of-the-mill Israelite. This fellow was worthy. He was wealthy, and he had a high standing. And there's a second nuance to his name, which has to do with nobility and character and respect. So in the end, the actions of this worthy man who is a respectable man, who has great integrity, is going to be heroic. Why? Because he's actually going to save a family name, a clan, from complete oblivion. 
He's going to be seen as a heroic figure. The name of Boaz means in the strength of Yahweh. Y'all think God makes mistakes? Or I will trust in the strength of Yahweh. That's the name of Boaz. So here we see a gigantic glimpse of hope. How God is working directly at the time of barley harvest. Bringing them there uh, to meet a relative named Boaz. This is the providential work of the Lord. Notice the next issue of providence and concurrence found in the text. Now I've used that word three times now. I'm going to tell you what it means in just a moment. But here is Ruth. And note what she does. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. For in him whose sight I shall find favor. And she's asking this in a humble way to Naomi. That she can go out and be industrious. Y'all see this correctly? Now y'all haven't been to church in a while. So wake up. You ready? I know you've been used to sleeping on my sermons in, your, you know, in the den. But this is important. You need to think about this. Here is a woman who has some industry about herself. Now, if you'd have made the trek from Moab to Judah, you probably would have had this idea. Let's just kick back and rest a little while. But that's not what Ruth does. Here is an industrious woman who says, may I actually go out and glean? She decides that she needs to get out and glean. You can learn about gleaning in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10 and Deuteronomy 24, 19. Do you know what it was? It was basically the Israelite welfare system. The difference in this welfare system and our welfare system is you actually had to work then. Y'all not listening. There were no handouts. You actually in this welfare system had to get up and go to work. And the law. Oh my goodness. This thing's killing me. Maybe this is going to help. It wasn't real tight. So maybe that's the problem. Thank you. Here's the deal. What does the, what does the law of gleaning mean? Well it basically is that if you owned land. When it came time to the harvest. You had to leave the corners of your field. And not glean them. So that the. Poorer Israelites or the foreigner can come to the corner of the fields and get grain. It was the law. You had to do this. And if you dropped the sheave, you were told not to go back and get it because you would leave it for those who were coming behind to glean and so that they would have food. It was a great system and it worked. And Ruth knew of this system and she sought to capitalize on it. Don't forget this. She was industrious. She put the hand to the plow. She acted. And also think about that humility. She doesn't just demand this to Naomi and say, hey, I'm going out to work. No, may I go? She knew, she understood uh, the matriarch type of relationship that she had with her mother-in-law. But for these two reasons, she was a Moabite and she was a widow. She qualified for gleaning on both accounts. But folks, she also was totally dependent on the local who owned the land. And that's why she says, in whose sight I might find favor. You know what this expression literally means? At home in the court. Wow. I need to be at home in the court of someone who will take notice. And that expression acknowledges his, a person's need of mercy at the hands of the king. I need to be at home in the court of the king. I, I know I need something. I'm, I need mercy. So the phrase is also key to the next section. 
But before we go to the next section, understand this. Ruth has some remarkable courage, doesn't she? I mean, she's industrious, she's humble, but she's courageous. She gets up and she even says it. Let me go out to the field and find and be in the court of someone who will take notice. So she's a Moabite and she's destitute, but she acts. Now the doctrine of concurrence teaches that the providence of God works through human actions and human decisions in such a way that at the same time we are acting, God is acting through our actions. Concurrence is what that means. That God is working at the same time you're making decisions and acting. As a matter of fact, God knows your thoughts before you think them. Right? So concurrence is something awesome. You say, I don't see that in the Bible. Well, Proverbs 16, 9 addresses it clearly. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. To God be the glory. One amen. You ought to be blessed, brother. Right? God works through and in us, not over and around us. He works in and through his people. So, God works in and through. Some people who don't know their Bibles protest the doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God. And they say, well, if God has it all worked out, then why should I do anything? Well, folks, do you see Ruth kicking back inside of a village in Judah and saying, hey, God is sovereign, absolutely. So I'm going to sit back, kick back, and I'm going to let Boaz come to my door and knock on the door. And we're going to get hitched and we're going to live happily ever after. Does that happen? No, folks, it doesn't happen. Don't you see that God uses Ruth's industry, her humility, and her courage to do exactly what his sovereign plan is? The grand and awesome doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God should not dissuade you from acting. It ought to motivate you to get up and act because God is in control. The fact that he knows the beginning from the end. You do know he's the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows it all. The fact that he knows that should not make you a spiritual slug. It should never make you a spiritual slug. It gives me great motivation personally to step out in faith and take risk. Why? Because my God doesn't take risk. He knows it all. He never takes a risk. So it, it energizes me and motivates me. Don't let the absolute sovereignty of God turn you into a lazy, slothful person. I would submit to you that the people who truly lay hold of the absolute sovereignty of God are the most industrious, the most humble, and the most courageous people that you will ever meet. One of the greatest missionaries that ever lived, the father of modern missions, was William Carey. And he believed 100% in the absolute sovereignty of God. Adoniram Judson was the first American missionary to go overseas. He believed 100% in the absolute sovereignty of God. But note this, they got up and they acted. They didn't sit on their blessed assurance in the church and take up space. You're welcome. They got up and they acted, right? So note, one more providential guidance. Don't you love this? The Bible says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Don't y'all love that word? Happened. Do you know what the translation in the Hebrew is? It's her chance, chanced 
Now, I know in, in, in English, grammatically, that doesn't fit. But in, but in Greek, it does. Her chance, put an ED on the end, chanced to fall on the field of Boaz. Do you know what the, our idiom would be for that? By a stroke of luck, she landed on the field of Boaz. Okay? Now, some of you are saying, see, I told you, preacher. There is luck and there is chance. Not so fast, my friend, right? The lot is passed, right, in the scripture, in the Proverbs. But God holds the lot, okay? So an Israelite would never say this. As a matter of fact, what he's doing is using a Hebrew rhetorical device for all of us to sit up and say, whoa, what's happening in this particular story? Her hap was to fall in the field of Boaz. And what the writer and narrator is doing is he wants you to sit up and take notice that the same God who brought them because of the famine down to Moab, the same God that ruled the time of seasons where the, the grain would be plentiful was the same God that put Ruth right there in that field. Are you all listening? This is the guiding providential grace and mercy of God guiding us. So God put her in the field. And ladies and gentlemen, this understanding of the providence of God that he is in control of all things will change your life forever. Your praying will never be the same when you understand that God is absolutely sovereign. But you are responsible for humility and courage and industry to get up and act on behalf of our God. Secondly, our God provides, us, provides for us through divine grace. Ruth is there on time for Boaz. Y'all see it in the text. I'm not going to read it all again. Look who shows up. Notice how this guy greets his people. If you own a business and you work people, then here's a good lesson for you. Think about this guy. Did he provide a positive work environment? You better believe it. He stands as a model of true covenant hesed. Loyalty and love, grace for those that he supervises. His speech from beginning to end was saturated in grace. It's no wonder that when he speaks to them, they turn around and bless him. How many of you who own a business and you speak to your employees will turn around and say a blessing of God upon you? They're probably saying, <laughs> right? What's your what? Just think about this guy. I mean, he's just a grace-saturated man. How a man treats those who work for him is more of an indication of his faith than what he does on Sunday morning. Oh, you can put on the God facade and you can teach a Sunday school class and you can put on the spiritual suit and you can give your tithe, but what you are on Monday is what you are. Are y'all listening? What do you do? What do you look like on Monday? Well, here's Ruth and she stumbles onto the field of a grace-saturated man. And it doesn't take long for him to take notice of Ruth. Boaz knows that she's out of place. She's not supposed to be here. Now you would think that Boaz would have said, who is this young woman? But is that what he says? No, he says, to whom does she belong? He assumes that she is not independent. He assumes that she belongs to someone like himself, a landowner, or She's going to become the wife of a landowner. He assumes this. She's out of place among the workers in the field. God, through the narrator, is again opening your understanding to the plan. Can you see it? Can you see the providential grace of God at work in the lives of his people? So the supervisor begins to recall the conversation. Who is this woman? And 
quickly, she's a young Moabite. She comes back with Naomi. She's connected to the line of Elimelech. Ruth is the right person for God to bring the right person into her life, which is an incredible lesson for those of you who are single who are looking for a mate. In order to get the right person, you need to be the right person. No one's saying anything. Did I say something that's not calculating, or have you never thought about this before? But here's, here's what's going on in the life of Ruth. So at this point, Boaz becomes proactive in verse 8. He is acting in grace, ladies and gentlemen. He gives a beneficial plan for Ruth that will solve Ruth and Naomi's food shortage. He offered her protection in grace. The male reapers, think about this, they may have done something to take advantage of her, to offend her, to make her uncomfortably, uncomfortable. One of my Old Testament preaching professors in my doctoral work's name was Dr. Daniel Block. He has written a masterpiece commentary on the book of Ruth. And here's what he says. Boaz institutes the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace recorded in Scripture. And he really does. He, he even, they, could, they could have taken advantage of her. He tells her to drink from what the young men have drawn. Folks, do you understand in this culture, it was never the norm for a woman, and especially a foreigner, to be able to drink from Israelite vessels? Men would draw for men and women for men if they were Israelites, but never this kind of situation. This was a reversal. This is called grace. Unmerited favor given to her. What a reversal of grace and loving kindness. So Ruth was there just to scratch out a daily sustenance, but our God had something huge to accomplish in her life. What does Ruth do at this point? Well, she bursts forth in praise of grace. When's the last time you just sat in the quietness of your quiet time before God in an open Bible and just wept because God was merciful to you. When is the last time you just praised him for grace? The fact that you would find favor in his sight. Folks, God did not have to save you. The fact that you found favor in his sight is something that ought to bring forth praise to him. She's overcome by generosity and the praise of grace. She didn't earn it. She didn't expect it. Quickly, don't turn there because of time. 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to Paul. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I don't care who you are today. If you're saved, you are what you are because of the grace of God. Aren't you thankful for grace? And that was her response, her posture, falling to the ground. She couldn't get any lower. She falls to the ground in praise of grace. Why me? I'm a woman. I'm a foreigner. She's stunned by grace and kindness. Notice how Boaz responds. He sees beyond her race, and he sees her faith. God blesses the brokenhearted, Psalm 34, 18. He Brings a new morning for those who trust him. Psalm 30 verse 5. And Boaz says, hey, I know the report. I know what you've done. I know how much love you had for your mother-in-law. I know the devotion. I know the sacrifice. And Boaz invokes a prayer of blessing upon Ruth. Fully entrusting Ruth to the Lord God Yahweh. May the Lord repay you full reward. And then she uses this expression. For faith in Yahweh. That is absolutely beautiful. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's 
the, the divine care of this expression is like none other found in the word of God. Yahweh here is pictured as a mother bird who offers her wings for protection for her young and those who are defenseless. The truth of the matter is, uh, you don't have a defense. The only one you have is the righteousness of Jesus, right? And he covers you. Ruth rests protected under the mighty wings of the Lord. Boaz is kind to Ruth because Yahweh has prepared the heart of Boaz. Boaz is kind. Ruth again responds in humility in that final verse. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your own servants. She understood her status correctly, didn't she? She didn't deserve her status. Here is a lady to point our daughters to and say, be like Ruth. Humility, courageous, industrious. Believing the Lord. Trusting the Lord. Now folks, we could take some young Boazes around here too, right? As men, we could. But here's a woman you can point your daughter to and say, be like Ruth. Now in conclusion, it is God Almighty that rules the times and seasons of your life. He does. His providence even governs the day of the coronavirus. It does. Wait on the Lord. Don't you know those verses? God is working. He is accomplishing his purpose. Don't be a passive slug. Get moving. Do you remember that old uh, cliche that was around during the day? Let go and let God. It's dangerous and it's unbiblical. You are never told in the Bible to let go and let God. It's unbiblical. Our motto should be trust God and get moving. Amen? Trust God and get moving. We have the revealed word of God given to us. Go forward on what you have given, been given in the revealed word of God. Move on with faith and courage because God is at work working through your decisions. Obey the word of God which has been given to you and revealed. Do you really know what wait on the Lord means? It's really holy busyness. It's not to sit back and say, well, one of these days God's going to do something. No, folks. If you're really truly waiting on the Lord, then you are wholly busy. You're in busyness before the Lord, doing what God would have you to do. It is not your prerogative to be dispatient or impatient with the sovereign God. It's not your prerogative. What your prerogative is, is to be industrious, humble, and courageous for the cause of Christ. The times and seasons are in His hands. Look, folks, work as if it all depended on you. But deep down in the heart of hearts, know that God Almighty is in control of all things. That should be your response. Romans 8.28 means nothing if God is not in absolute control. All things work together for good to them that love God. How is that even remotely possible if God doesn't control all things? It's not possible. You can't claim Romans 8.28 if it's not true and God is who he says he is. Why is that given? It's given for the comfort of the saints. It ought to be comforting to everybody in who trusts Christ that God works all things together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. I told you earlier that God is the God of the two-minute warning. It may seem absolutely hopeless because time is running out, but our God will come through in the end because the, the game is rigged. And I don't care what you believe, if, I don't care how much you believe on free will, I'm telling you folks, 
all things. You've got to take that verse out of the Bible, not for that to be true. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good to them that called according to his purpose. Right? I'm telling you, folks, he's got a flair that's unbelievable. He's got a flair for drama. And why does he do this? So that you'll trust God more and that you'll give him high praise because he controls all things. You only need to look at Gideon who won a battle by blowing a horn and breaking a few vessels. Why? Because God wins the battle, not you. God does it. Amen? We serve an incredible God. We ought to demonstrate industry, humility, courage, knowing that God will take you to the right field. Amen? Father, you're so good to us. And we love you, Lord. And we put our faith and confidence in you. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Concurrence. Sovereign God working through human decisions and actions so that you accomplish your purpose. Thank you, Father. You are an incredible God that controls all things. Father, would you protect our people? And Father, would you take this message and seal it in our hearts that it may be brought up into our remembrance so that we know who you are and how you work. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. No traditional invitation because of the six-foot rule. I know some of you want to kiss me right in the face. I'm good with that. But at the same time, I'm going to be in the North Fellowship Hall as you leave. If there's anything you'd like to talk to me about spiritually, I will be on the right in the North Fellowship Hall. God bless you. We're going to close with a hymn. And uh, glad you were in church today. To God Amen. be the glory. Hey, and as we go, let, oh, praise the Lord. Uh, as we go, let's, uh, let me remind you, at this point, we're becoming the spiritual Walmart. One way, folks. Okay? So, uh, and the ushers are going to let you out at, 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 the, at the, the, the back rows, and then you go, and then the next row, and then the next row, okay? And just sort of keep moving out into the parking lot so we don't get a crowd in the lobby. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place. You would bear my cross. You would lay down your life that I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. This is amazing grace. 